701, and when you hear that music, it can only be one of two things. 95 Chicago Bulls are rolling out, or it's time for Ira on Sports. 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike and Sean here with you as well. Another action-packed episode of Ira on Sports. We've caught up with Scott Deal, our professional golfer, uh, all throughout the golf season. He's always entertaining. He joins us at 7.20. And then at 7.40, product liability expert, attorney Phil Combs is going to join us. And Ira, maybe you can um, elaborate a little bit more on what we can expect from Phil. Well, Phil has two. He's one of the top product liability defense experts and uh, lawyers in the United States, um, and his expertise is defending helmet manufacturers. So there's a thought that maybe football will end. I mean, you can't play football without helmets, and if nobody <laughs> makes helmets and there's no manufacturers making helmets, then we might not have football on Sunday. So he's going to talk about what's going on in that, and we also can ask him about why when you go to baseball games now, there's nets around the entire field, it seems like, every time. And uh, some also interesting case that you see if you watch ESPN a lot about they're talking about soccer fields having with cancer on soccer fields. So we're going to talk about that. And he is an expert on the, on the he's been, he was a U.S. attorney and had prosecuted a lot of cases for domestic violence, so he can help with the Urban Meyer case and give some legal expertise on that issue. Yeah, this is going to be a great show. Stick around, Ira on Sports 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Maybe Phil will recommend going back to leather helmets, Ira. Maybe we, maybe we can uh, you know take it all the way back to the 20s, make things uh, a little bit safer and less, uh, less legality brought into it. Uh, first and foremost, we start every Ira on Sports with, Ira, where you been? Well, I, I want to tell you something. I, I, I have football right now. I think everyone I know who loves football, they're looking. I mean, I was at a play. I was, I, was, I was at a restaurant by myself at a bar, and there were like eight people looking at fantasy football on their computers, on their printouts. Everyone's getting for fantasy football. Everyone's getting ready for football. I really need to get it in my blood and it's in my veins. So I went to Steeler training camp for two days. Uh, and it was tremendous. Back in, in Latrobe, Pennsylvania, uh, watched the Steelers get ready. Now, there was no Antonio Brown, no Lavian Bell, but Ben did throw one day, and it was great. I got five hours of Steeler practice. No, and we got some uh, some awesome takeaways from that that we'll touch on just a second here on Ira on Sports. Um, Ira, I don't know, unlike you, I, I'm a baseball guy, and a lot of people aren't. So for me... The preseason of the NFL really doesn't get me into it. It's not until the games really start. So I, I like your t- being proactive. Let's show up at, at training camp and start getting into this. Get the uh, get the blood flowing for some football. First, you know, everyone's going to ask the question. Big Ben getting older. I, I mean, you know, the, the the class with him, Eli, Philip Rivers, they got a few years left unless they want to be Tom Brady and play till they're seventy. How's Ben looking physically? Well, you heard, you saw it on TV. You heard the reports. They said he slimmed down. He looks great. He looks amazing. I mean, I was there. I saw him. He. I'm not saying that he's Lex Luthor or what Lex Luger or whatever he is, WWE superstar. But you can tell that he has lost a good 20 pounds. He seems to be running around the field well. He's still Big Ben. Uh, total control of the team. I mean, it's like I guess if you went to Patriot practice, you've seen it. I mean, he is talking to Tomlin for an hour and a half during practice. He is. The, everyone's looking to him. He's the leader of the team. He's the general. Um, and you get that when you've been in the NFL as long as he has and won as much as he has and been a first ballot Hall of Famer, uh, but he looks great, and I think that's uh, considering that it looked like he was adding some pounds, he looked a little slower the last couple years, I think this drafting Mason Rudolph has motivated him, I think the Steelers lost, lost to Jacksonville last year, motivated him, I thought people saying he's done and he's finished motivated him, but he, I know he was in personal, so he got his training, but he looks fantastic. 
Ira, did you just put Big Ben in as a first ballot Hall of Famer? T.O. right now is not happy listening to Ira on sports hearing that. You've got Big Ben in first ballot. You're going to stand by that? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt he's the first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, when he, we're going to talk about this, our next big topic, but when you, when you look at these quarterbacks, the Rivers, Eli, and Ben, when they finish, they're going to be in the top four or five in terms of uh, yards and touchdowns, and then they're going to have Super Bowls. With two, I mean, I expect Ben to win two more Super Bowls. So oh, I'm sure you do. Super Bowls that we come, he already has <laughs> two, he's, you know, so he's been to three. He's got two more to go. He's getting first ballot. You know, uh, Sean LeGreg is here with us, and of course we're in a group text with you, Ira, and you were basically on the field with these guys. I mean, how close you were to the action. But Sean, you noticed something that I didn't really realize when you're looking at this team. Yeah, when, when, when you sent the picture, Ira, it was uh, I believe it was it was Mike Tomlin standing right next to Big Ben, and we know Big Ben as a you know as a one of the more physically imposing uh, quarterbacks in the league. And Mike Tomlin looked like he was only like two two or three inches shorter, yeah. and I was I was really surprised by that. You know about how big Mike Tomlin was. Uh, Ira, you think well, Mike I, Tomlin could take any uh, coach in the NFL in a fight? I, this guy's <laughs> he's surprisingly big. Well, it was interesting when you see Tomlin on the sidelines. It's you, he sort of has his reputation as being more detached and letting his assistants do the coaching. During, during uh, practice, a, during training camp, he's involved. I mean, he is jumping in there, showing drills with everyone. I, I, I was, he's very much involved. Uh, the Steelers staff, is, it, when you, it's very impressive when you watch it. They, they were not just running sprints. and They do that. They have morning practices that you're not allowed to see. This is the afternoon practice, and there's 10,000 people. The first practice was at Latrobe, uh, which is at St. Vincent College. So it's at a college on a field. They have four fields out there. And the Friday practice was, was cool because it was a high school football stadium uh, Couple of miles away under the lights, and they had 10,000 fans at that game. So it was sort of a different perspective. But they didn't just go through. I mean, I heard they might practice an hour, an hour and a half. They practiced two and a half hours. They were running plays. They were running plays, offense, defense. Now they weren't tackling to you know to cause injury, but they were they were definitely hitting. There was hitting going on, and it was very interesting to see the the one on one passing drills. I mean, they must have each quarterback must they had four quarterbacks to Steelers have, including Ben must have thrown hundreds of balls into the end zone, running short passes. They weren't doing long passes, but just doing one on one passing drills. Uh, definitely it can be a very up-tempo offense for the Steelers as, as it's been the last couple of years, but even more this year with Randy Fichter replacing Todd Haley as offensive coordinator. I mean, with the skill position players they have, they should always be a high-octane offense. 708 Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike and Sean here as well. Ira, you mentioned a few big names missing. We'll talk about Le'Veon Bell in just a second. He's not in a contract, but what's the status with Antonio Brown not practicing? Wow, you know, I was so excited to see him, and then you heard he he wasn't at practice, and the dealer said he was taken to Pittsburgh for an undisclosed injury. They won't even say what. Sometimes it's say upper body, lower body. They didn't say anything. They said he'll be fine. It's just day to day. But it was weird that they didn't even now not disclose because there's no games going on, so they don't have to actually disclose what the injury was. But it was he did not. He wasn't there both days. Wasn't even at the practice, so I was missing him. But I'll have to say this: Juju Smith-Schuster, oh, a tremendous he. It looks he is so fast. He's the fastest guy on the field. He caught every pass. Did not drop a pass. They were running drills and the and Mason Rudolph, the rookie, was throwing maybe a bad pass or Josh Jobs was throwing a bad. He would catch 
everything. He was like Odell Beckham Jr. times 10. And uh, with him and, and Washington, who was the, uh, uh, the, first, the second round draft choice from Oklahoma State uh, in the third wide receiver position, the Steelers with Antonio Brown, they're going to have by far the best wide receiving crew in the whole NFL. Uh, Juju Smith-Sister would probably be a number one wide receiver on maybe 28, 29 of the other teams in the NFL. I mean, he was tremendous. I mean, he looked great last year as a rookie. This year he looks even better. You know, Ira, it's one of those things. Juju is one of these guys that I liked coming in to, uh, you know, coming into the draft two years ago. The Steelers have done a better job drafting receivers than any team in my entire life. I mean, I mean, if you go through and look at everyone they've drafted, a lot of them walked because they couldn't get a contract. They had pers- personnel issues, whatever it was. But Sean, I know that you're a big college guy, and you just loved Juju at USC. Yeah, I mean, his where. Ira brings up a good point, the speed, everything. I mean, his athletic ability was was phenomenal. He's got good size, great speed. Uh, what I like at receivers, the hesitation going over the middle. You know, he also makes himself very available target, where what that means is his catch radius is is huge. You know, you could kind of throw it any any direction, five feet of him, and he's, he's going to go get it. Uh, his pro comparison coming out of college was Anquan Bolden. You know, tough, I see that. strong hands, runs clean routes, uh, not scared of contact. So when you look at what they were lacking, where they're kind of hoping what Martavius Bryant could be and never evolved into that, to complement A.B., the guy that can, you know, take the top off a of defense, also run, you know, a, a, a you know a little two-yard uh, uh, hitch and take it to the house. You know, Juju Smith, they're doing all that dirty work. That's exactly what they needed, um, and, and I thought the fit was absolutely perfect uh, for the Steelers last year. Speaking of dirty work, who doesn't love the Vontae's perfect standover <laughs> <laughs> when we're talking about dirty work? Um Ira, let's just step back one second to, to Le'Veon Bell. I mean, him and Odell Beckham, which we'll talk about in a minute, these are the two contracts that everyone's talking about. Ira, what's it going to take to get Le'Veon under contract? Well, it looks like they're just gonna, there will be no contract. I mean, I think they're going to have to wait the play of the year out and see what happens. But um, I was surprised. I think when you heard, I asked a lot of sports, uh, a lot of the reporters there, I think everyone was shocked that a deal couldn't get done. I mean, there was not one person I talked to. Uh, these are people that cover the Steelers. They're there every practice. I mean, they're the ones that came up to me and said, you look excited about this. I've been doing this for two weeks. I have two more weeks. I'm bored out of my mind. <laughs> these reporters. And, they all, and I asked them, I go, were you surprised about Lady and Bell? And everyone was, like, shocked. They said, I cannot believe it didn't get done. And they felt like it was like Labian. They sort of blamed Labian a little bit, where the Steelers felt where they were coming up to what he wanted. He just kept moving it a little bit further and further and further until the Steelers just said no. Um, and, and he just pressed the wrong buttons with them. But everyone was surprised. No deal got done. And now he's going to play under the contract, the one year deal, for $15 million this year. And he'll be a free agent next year. And they won't be able to resign. I mean, if they they'll have to work out a deal going forward. And I think Ira brings up a great point right there where he says, you know, kind of, hey, we want this. And then once it came, he kept moving it and moving it. I think he's gone. You know, I think there's enough mistrust between his camp and the Steelers that I don't think he signs long term moving forward. And the fact, you know, where you kind of said, hey, he kind of kept moving it and moving it. It was kind of his way of saying, hey, I'm done here. Um, I, I would be surprised if 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 next year he is he's signed with the Steelers. But I, I think his head is, is completely out of Pittsburgh at this point. I would have to agree with you there. For some reason, I just don't think... I think a deal would have got done if he wanted to be there. That's what I mean. It's, it, it just seems as if he does not want to be there. Ira, you know, you brought up Mason Rudolph earlier, another guy that, um, you know, highly coveted in, in this past NFL draft. Who do you think, though, is going to win the job as Steelers' backup? 
Well, that's the I don't. I'm like you. I'm not into preseason football. I don't enjoy it. But I might watch it this year because it will be interesting. Because you know, Ben might get hurt. He's going to miss a couple games, and those games are going to be important. And I just there's been you know Josh Dobbs of Tennessee, uh, Landry Jones who's from Oklahoma who's who's been there for about four years, and then you have Mason Rudolph from Oklahoma State. So I think it's going to be a very interesting competition. I watch the practice. I watch them play. They all look even. And I think if they all look even, and you're and you're and you're saying Mason Rudolph is the rookie and he He's even with these other guys. You think Mason definitely has it, and they're going to cut either Landry Jones or Josh Dobbs. I, I don't know which way they're going to go from it. They, it was, it's, they, all of those th- other three were missing. They were not as accurate as Ben. Like, you watch Ben throw, and then you watch those three, you can see the difference. And anyone who thought that Mason Rudolph was going to take the job over Ben, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Mason Rudolph is like a year or two away from yeah. even starting anywhere in the league, let alone with the Steelers. So, um, but I think Mason is definitely going to make it a, I would say maybe Dobbs, or I, I, I think it's 50-50 right now, though, we'll see. And, and, and you bring up a good point, because I was so shocked that this, you know, all this came out, I know that Ben didn't help the situation when he made the comments that he did about, you know, Mason's arrival, but the guy that I'm most interested in is actually his teammate, and that's James Washington, the, the wide receiver. Um, I haven't heard too much, you know, there was a few things I, I, I read, you know, with A.B. not practicing while you there, Ira, the extra reps that James Washington uh, did get, you know, did, did he stand out at all? Is Does he look like he's, you know, where where is he at in the depth chart? Has he shown anything so far? I think they're saying he's going to be third string. I, I, I'm not sure. Sorry, he'll be the third back. He, a third wide receiver. He looked, he caught some amazing passes. First yeah. of all, his speed, his hands. Uh, unfortunately, his best catches were when Mason Rudolph, who was quarterback in college, was throwing him the ball. That's but what I he heard. He had a bunch of, he had probably the most circus catches. I mean, Juju Smith's sister had had every catch with a circus catch with him. <laughs> but Washington, I thought he looked great. Uh, the reporters there said he's been looking great, not dropping balls. Uh, I think yeah. he's. A, I think the Steelers have totally improved over the Martavis Bryant situation. I think Washington and, uh, and Schuster and Brown is just going to be a perfect. And that's one reason why the Steelers might say, we have James Conner as their backup running back. They pay him $500,000 a year. They're like, should we, do we have to pay Bell $15 million when what can he do? I mean, I know he's yeah. the best back in the league and he catches all the balls, but the way the Steelers I mean, the Steelers might be getting this feeling that, look, we run a system offense, and we can put anybody back there, and they're going to play great. We don't need to pay a running back $15 million, and we can get another running back for $500,000 that'll do the same thing. 716, Iron Sports, 95.9, True Oldies Channel. Mike and Sean are here as well. Just about five minutes, we're joined by professional golfer Scott Deal to discuss what we can expect this weekend and also look back at Justin Thomas's big win the past weekend. Uh, before we move on, Ira, how were the Steelers players with the fans? You know, there was a big hubbub recently about, uh, you know, the dirtbags in the Cowboys camp, Sean's boys, Ezekiel <laughs> Elliott, people hanging out for three hours, oh not getting not getting signatures. How were the players with the fans? Not true. Well, I would say Ben Lotzenberger signed a million <laughs> autographs. He, there's, there's, um, you go from the field and you have to walk up uh, a hill where there, the dormitories are. So there's a long walk. It might be 200, 300 yards. And he, for an hour and a half, would sign autographs for everybody, every kid. He didn't complain. He was talking to people. Um, and then at the, at the little trope practice, 
he didn't practice, but he spent, oh, when they, the team came off the bus, they immediately went and signed autographs. I thought all the students were great. I thought Ben was amazing. I thought they, there were so many kids. They all loved it. They had fan fest at both places where you could go and play and all the stuff. So, I mean, it, 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 it was definitely very fan-friendly. The Steelers know how to do it. The Steelers know that they're very popular, and uh, they really, they, and Ben has embraced the role of being this fan-friendly quarterback. And if you, if you wanted your autograph with Ben, you got it. He signed everything. I didn't see one person not get an autograph for Ben Rothenberg. He's switching gears from a team that actually wins Super Bowls and uh, playoff games to the Cowboys. Sean, <laughs> you're a big Cowboys fan. You guys have high expectations this season. What's your camp looking like? Well, I mean, two two areas that they've been talking about is the corners and then the wide receivers. Uh, Byron Jones, he was the athletic freak that came out of the combine at a, a UConn, set the you know the uh, the the standing jump and you know, three cone drill. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he set multiple records. They've converted him from safety back to his natural position, which is corner. Um, he's been lights out, you know, during this camp so far. He fits the mold of the new uh, quarterback coach that we have, Chris Richards, formerly of the Seattle Seahawks. So he seems to know what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of and he's already come out and said he envisions him uh, as his this team's version of Richard Sherman. Now, I'm not building him up to be Richard Sherman. You know, Richard Sherman is a Hall of Fame player, but that's where they see the length, the skill, the ability to break up balls, use that size as an advantage. Second-round pick last year, uh, Cheeto Awuzie. I mean, he's really balled out so far. He he showed glimpses last year towards the tail end, uh, missed camp, missed part of the season uh, due to hamstrings, um, injuries, but really showed up towards the end of the year and showed why he was a second-round pick, why some people thought he should have been a first-round pick those two corners I mean they've been lights out uh now also a lot of talk in the receiving corps okay so uh Hearns uh the wide receiver we got from Jacksonville mm. had a minor injury but he's shown a lot of leadership hasn't been out there that much our third round pick Michael Gallup out of Colorado State he's everything that they build him up to be I mean he was one of the uh, Belichnikov uh, finalists uh which is best receiver in college um Gets separation, strong hands, goes over the uh, middle, can high point balls. He's shown to be a guy that can grow into a true number one uh, in this league. Some of the biggest surprises, though, Cole Beasley didn't have a really good year last year, kind of went away from him when it was so instrumental to Dak's success his rookie year. Cole Beasley's lined up everywhere. He's lined up in the slot. He's lined up uh, out wide, which he never really did, and he's having a fantastic camp. And I don't want to say it because it's like, how many times have you heard this story? But newly acquired via trade, Tavon Austin from the Los Angeles Rams. I'm telling you, they've been lining him up. Every thought, he's a slot receiver, and and what the Rams did in the past two years was line him up in the backfield. And that's what they kind of said coming in. It's like, hey, we envision him as more of a scat back. He hasn't lined up in camp once in the backfield. They've lined him up, not in the slot, but outside in the Y, and he's taking the top off. I mean, I've seen him make some insane catches. There was one clip where they said Tavon Austin Moss is a guy. I was like, I have to see this because he's, you know, all of five nine and a half. And, I mean, he went up, caught a ball over somebody and took it in, uh, you know, another six yards for a touchdown. And it was a, you know, 40, 50-yard bomb. So I don't expect too much from Tavon Austin. I don't want to go down that fantasy uh, bust potential. <laughs> but I will say that he's had a, a, a very strong and surprising uh, camp. So the two issues that everybody thinks, you know, which, which are our concerns 
as fans is you know the corners and the wide receivers and 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 so far they've looked uh, both solid. You know Tavon Austin won't be a fantasy bust because nobody's drafting until the fifteenth <laughs> round. But if you're the Rams taking him at what pick nine overall, I believe. I, I believe yeah, it was. I believe, yeah, I believe it was eight through ten. Somewhere yeah, there. that's a little bit of a bust. Scott Deal joins us in just one minute. Our pro golfer. Um, you know I'm not big in camp. I don't follow my team, the Giants, that intently. But I have been following the Dolphins. I like to know what's going on in Davie, Florida, all the time. So just quickly, I don't know if you guys have seen, obviously, uh, Ryan Tannehill recovering from a pretty serious uh, knee injury. He looks to be 100%. And Adam Gase is going to let them open up the playbook this year. Let him get get out and scramble. Let him try to make some throws. So that looks good. I'd say their biggest, uh, the Dolphins' biggest chip right now is Laramie Tunsil, who fell from the number one overall pick to 13. He looks good. And, you know, they moved him from guard to tackle, which is his natural position. He's going against Robert Quinn on almost every play. Robert Quinn is an amazing, amazing player. And Quinn's like, this guy's good. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's slowing me down. So Tunsil looks great. I think that all eyes are going to be on Raekwon McMillan, though. Uh, Second-round draft pick last year. Supposed to be a phenomenal uh, middle, linebacker. middle linebacker. What college was that, Shawnee? Ohio State. The oh, Ohio State. Amazing uh, linebacker. Missed all of last season. So it's like getting a first-round pick back or a second-round pick back uh, for this year. So we're looking forward to that out of Dolphins game. I want to touch on Odell Beckham in just a couple of minutes, also the Hall of Fame. But right now we got to bring in our buddy Scott Deal, professional golfer. Scott, last time we talked to you, I think you were withdrawing from a tournament just to be on Iron Sports. So we, we appreciate you making the time for us today, Scott. Oh, man, I am back in, uh, back in the States in Las Vegas here and uh, got a couple off weeks from uh, – from out PGA Tour China, and so just uh, looking forward to spending the week watching the PGA and the championship and uh, enjoying some life at home for a little bit here. <laughs> Listen, I don't blame you. Iris got a ton of questions for you about, uh, you know, looking back on Justin Thomas, also looking forward, but I've got to ask you first. I haven't heard of this Bellarive golf course. Have you played there before? Uh, you know, I have not played uh this golf course yet i do have a buddy who uh he actually played for the rams for eight years and he was a member there and uh, i've talked to him a couple times this week he said he absolutely loves it um he has he played there before the redesign of the bunkers uh they did in 2006 and then after as well and he said they uh the golf course is just really really tough i love a tough golf course um it should be an exciting weekend. One of the things that I thought was weird, and Ira, you can comment on this. It's very rare that like the top 10 people in the field all have the same odds. There's really no, literally no distinction between Tiger, uh, Dustin Johnson. Everybody who's in the top 10 or 15 has the same odds across the board, I. Yeah, you yeah know, I mean, um, I think they, they really, Go ahead, Scott. Go ahead, guys, sir. No, I was, uh, I was going to ask you that about the fact is that it, it seems to be we when you were on the show before talking about the Masters, but even with the PGA now, it's it's as wide open as any time, and wide open with really good golfers. You can make a strong case for for at least ten, fifteen golfers that that no one's going to laugh at you were saying, oh, I think that this person is going to win. Yeah, I, I think I think there's there's about there's about a dozen guys right now that that are are just playing better than everybody else, um, and. And no surprise, it's also some of the longest uh, players on tour, or at least guys that have the highest numbers in strokes gained uh, tee to green. Uh, I think that's a big stat, especially in these major championships that we got to look at. And uh, and I think that you know these these twelve guys you got DJ, JT, 
J-Day, Tiger, Henrik Stenson, Justin Rose, uh, they, they all just they almost play boring golf because they just hit it really high, really <laughs> far, really straight. They hit it on the green, fairly close to the hole, and they make a ton of putts. I mean, it, as boring as it sounds, it's really fun to do and fun to watch. So, um, you know, I think we do have some dark horses in the field this week, um, although th- this golf course doesn't really set up for uh, anybody that's not going to be hitting it out there flying at 300 yards. Um, but, but you've got some younger guys like an Aaron Wise, uh, Thor Bjorn Olsen uh, coming over from the European Tour uh, are two guys I, I'm going to really keep my eye on this week. Um, they both just absolutely mash it. Um, they don't have any pressure being it's their, you know, some of their first majors that they played in or, or at least first full season of majors. And, uh, and I think that kind of atmosphere could, could bode well for somebody coming, uh, coming from that low odds numbers in the pack, you know, the 250 to 1 guys. Well, I mean, Justin Thomas last week, uh, very impressive. I mean, I was waiting for this Bridgestone. Like, we're going to have – Rory was in, in, in shooting range, Matt, uh, and Jason Day was – and they both shot 73s in the final round. And Tiger, you know, had two bad rounds on Saturday and Sunday. But the Sunday was pretty boring. I mean, there was, there was no run at all most the whole day. And I saw a stat that, that Justin Thomas now has been leading with the 36-hole lead five times. And he's won the tournament all five times. So in the last five times, so he's, he's proven to be a closer, better than even Rory has been. And, of course, he's the defending champion. So you really got to like Justin Thomas's odds and how he's playing. You know, it's hard to win back-to-back. But uh, what, do you, what would you say about Justin Thomas's game specifically? Well, uh, it, Justin Thomas's game is, is pretty much best in the world next to, next to DJ, I think. Um, and, and FedEx Cup points are showing that. All the strokes gained statistics show that, and I think his, his win percentage shows it as well. I mean, the kid just, he's got no fear. He likes to play super aggressive, uh, and, and he doesn't really miss golf shots when he's in the fairway, and, and he seems to be in the fairway a lot, especially under pressure. Um, speaking of that stat you just, you just kind of quoted there, I've got another great one for you here. Um, you've got Justin Thomas, who has... 10 wins worldwide, 24 top 10. That's 37.5% of the time he's in contention or in the top 10, he wins. Wow. And so the only person with a better win percentage within the top 10 is, of course, and none other than Tiger Woods, Mm -hmm. who is – 66 and change percent when, with his 90 wins and 137 top 10. Oh, man. So some of, some of the other ones, you know, and we're still talking about that group of 12 guys or so. Um, you've got Justin Thomas at 37%, Jason Day, 21% win when he's in contention. And we're talking about being in contention at, you know, finishing in the top 10. That means coming down that stretch on Sunday, you, you really had a shot. Um, uh, you know, kind of in the bottom of the pack, Ricky Fowler, only 11%. But Rory, 20%. Uh, Justin Rose, 15%. J-Day, 21%. Um, you know, so, so these guys, Adam Scott, 21%. Jordan Spieth, 25%. So that, that upper echelon of players, when you're looking at, at the FedEx Cup points and, and, you know, that group of guys that are, always seem to be there, they, they not only seem to get themselves in contention, but when you're talking about winning 20% of the time when you're in contention, that's an incredible stat with the amount of talent 
that's out on the PGA Tour right now. Right, right. It, I, one player that is perplexing is Jordan Spieth. Uh, as much as everyone's on Tiger's case for saying, well, he shot 73, I mean, Jordan Spieth, you know, he didn't finish strong. Jordan Spieth was plus five for the tournament. He was like 60-something out of the 70 uh, contestants. I mean, he, he seemed, and he shot a 74 for his final round. Where is, I mean, is it every week it seems like it could be different, but what, what is his problem this year in terms of, I mean, it, it just seems like he's in contention on some tournaments and he's way out of contention on other tournaments. Yeah, so, you know, Jordan... Jordan's still, um, you know, he, he's still top 10 player in the world. Um, regardless of what any stats or world ranking points say, he's always going to be up there, at least for the foreseeable future. Um, you know, it kind of brings in the morale or the, the not morality, but the, uh, the uh, humanness of these guys that we kind of think of as superhuman out there. Um, Jordan Spieth had mono at the beginning of the year. And uh, I, I've never had it, but I know friends that have, and it's something that, you know, it, it can take two or three years to really just get over that. Um, and, and so in July, August, playing in the humidity of the Midwest and the South and uh, four, four-day golf tournaments, which are really, you know, feel like 12-day work weeks, um, getting over that uh, sickness like that can, can kind of cause havoc for a while. Um, you know, I think the the fact that the guys get married um, as much as <laughs> we all, you know, I, I don't, uh, I'm not married, so I can't totally speak on this one. But um, I can I can imagine the amount of just uh, uh, focus that that kind of takes away from from work, your work environment, being whatever it is you do. Um, I, I'm not making excuses for the guy. I, I think you know, I think maybe uh, a time to look at working with somebody else on, on the putting um, and the golf swing as well might be, you know, it might be time to just get some new ideas, some new thought processes going for the guy. But, um, you know, without making excuses for him, I, I, I don't think he's, he's – look, he was one swing away from the greatest comeback of all time at the Masters this yeah. year. It was one bad tee shot on 18. You know, he could have done it there. Um he, he didn't play awful at the open. He had he was in the lead going into the final round, you know. Uh, so I, I think he's right there. Um, it's just can he close, uh, you know? And and I love watching the guy play and everything, but I've got a feeling that uh, guys like DJ and Justin Thomas just I think they got a little more fight in them. I don't know. It's just kind of what I see. I think they've got that killer instinct. Jordan might just be too nice sometimes. <laughs> So, 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 Scott. I guess the ultimate question is, who's your who's your pick? Who's your pick to win this? Oh man. Okay. So, uh, my pick, my pick to win is is DJ. Uh, I think DJ. I think DJ will battle it out down the stretch. I think. Uh, I think it's a, the ten year anniversary of uh, God, ten or fifteen. What is it when he got destroyed at the PGA? It was been a while. Um, I think he's ready to do it. He's got three wins this year. He's got a whole slew of top tens. I think seventeen top tens right now. Um, and he won on golf courses at Kapalua. He won at Farmers. Uh, he wins at golf courses that are kind of set up like Bellevue, where it's, it's really long. You got to play it high and long and off the tee and on your approach shots. Um, so I, I think DJ gets it done this week. But I'm rooting for Tiger. Yeah. Scotty, before I let you go, 
Um, we always love you having you as a guest here on Ira on Sports. My one question, though, a, a lot of golfers, especially these top guys, they've got swagger. Tiger Woods, Dustin Johnson, Ricky Fowler, Phil. Why does Justin Thomas look like he asks you if you want black beans or pinto at Chipotle? He has like no presence out there. I love him, but I'd like to see him just get more into it, I guess. Yeah, you know, um, I'd love to see him come out with, uh, with the, the, the button-down shirt with the tie tucked in again. You know, just <laughs> something fun. Um, I don't know. You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what it is. What his personality? I, I really, I don't know him personally, um, and so I'm not. I'm not really sure what it is about his lack of swagger there. Uh, I, I think you know he's still a young guy uh, at what 24. Um, I, I think kind of figuring out where his swagger lies might be a thing. And, and and you know what? He's gotten it done for so long from junior golf all through now. Uh, when you look at the old pictures of him and, and Jordan Spieth playing junior golf when they were 12, 13, 14 years old, uh, Justin Thomas looks exactly like he does then as he does now. <laughs> he, he really does. I mean, he's just, he's a little kid. He's got his whole family out there rooting him on. And, and maybe that's just his, that, that's his swagger right there. He's just going to kind of lurk from behind, not do anything super showy, and then just beat your brains in with 380-yard drives. Speaking of um, laying down in the cut, Ira, you pulled a stat earlier. Last five times he's been in the lead after uh, 36 holes, he wins. So obviously he knows what he's doing on Saturday and Sundays. Scott Deal, I want to thank you so much for popping by Ira on Sports. You're our golf guy. We always love having you. 734, it hey. is. Uh, hey, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, I was just going to say thanks for having me, guys, anytime. It's a pleasure, and uh, have fun watching uh, watching the event this year. I just saw him drive the, the Budweiser in on the Clydesdale horses, so I think I'm going to just follow suit here for the rest of the week. Scotty. But, uh, you guys have a great one. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, pleasure as always. Scott Deal, our uh, professional golf insider, joins us here on Iron Sports. 734, just about five minutes, we're going to be joined by Phil Combs, who's going to uh, one of the leading attorneys in the country when it comes to product liability. He's going to tell us about what's maybe going to happen over the next couple of years uh, in the NFL. Speaking of the NFL, let's go back to it for a minute. Ira, I'm in the camp that Antonio Brown's the best receiver in football, and it's not close. Odell Beckham wants to get paid like he's the best receiver in football, and the reports are out now that the Giants are set to do that. Do you think Odell Beckham is worth the money? I, I don't. I, we, I just don't. I, I think that he's confident. I think they're confident. Now, they could do a different job because he's younger than Le'Veon Bell, the way they can sign contracts. Le'Veon actually cannot be signed to a long-term deal until the season is over. But it looks like the Giants, he's positive. He was being interviewed yesterday today and seemed confident a deal was going to get done. Uh, Giants are going all in. I think that they want him. I think they want a happy Odell in camp. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how much is guaranteed, how much up front, those things. Uh, they must feel confident that he's healthy uh, from his injury last year because they've been seeing him in camp the last couple weeks. And I think that's what's probably gave them incentive to get a deal done. I would do a deal with Odo Beckham Jr. I think it's, he's too much me, me, me. All wide receivers are like that. 
but it looks like the Giants are going on, and, they, and that's why they have Eli as a quarterback and Barkley as a running back, and uh, they're going to go for it this year. Sean, I, you know, you being a Cowboy fan, you're as critical of the Giants as anybody. You think we're wasting money on Odell Beckham? It depends on how it's structured. You know, if, if does he get a lot of guaranteed money, which I, I think they will. How do they break it up? What you know, he said twenty million. Do I think they get close to that? I don't know. Um, but does he deserve to be paid like one of the top three guys? Does he deserve, you know, Antonio Brown money? Does he deserve Julio money? I, I do think so. You can look at what he does on the field and how much he means to that organization. You take him off that team last year. What are you guys a, a two three win team? Yeah. You get the second second pick year before it. We're talking about oh my god, this is a you know, a team that can go on a run. We have a great defense. Odell is Odell. Um, he's 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 giving life to Eli towards the tail end of his career. He goes out, and you guys are one of the worst teams in the league. So, uh, from from that standpoint, I think you have to pay him. You've obviously brought Barkley in. You brought Solder in to extend Eli's time. Now is the time to do it. Maybe we don't see you know like a, a super long extension, but something that you know Gurley got the four year seventy million somewhere in that range. Where okay, I'm not going to sign this guy to the six, seven crazy long years. But if I give him four years, we guarantee a lot. And I have a young superstar from the age of what I believe is he 26, you know, and I can keep him under contract till he's under 30, you know, for those 25. years. Yes, yeah, 25. So if I can sign him for four years, I get the best years of Odell Beckham, um, you know, where he's not out of his prime. So I think he deserves the money. Is he a little bit of a head case? Yeah, but I think all receivers are so. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you guys. I like a quiet guy, but he's not that. Yeah, there's not too many A.J. Greens, Calvin Johnsons walking the, the No, planet. there's really not. Even <laughs> not Antonio Brown's pretty quiet. Too. Oh, I mean, yeah, he, as he showed up to Some Pittsburgh. weird hairstyles. <laughs> but other than that, he showed up in a helicopter. It, you know, he's no Dez and no Odell. No, no, where no, they, the focus is on them. That's my only knock on him. We'll see what happens, but the, they are saying that the Giants are in talks to make him the highest paid receiver in the league. Uh, before we get to Phil Combs, I think everyone's talking about this. Kelvin Benjamin, he calls out Cam Newton in an interesting, I want to say it's not classy at all, to go out and rip your former quarterback, a guy who had an MVP season while you were there. Ira, do you think that Kelvin Benjamin has a point about if he was not drafted to Cam Newton, he would be a better receiver today? Well, it was a it was a harsh criticism for Cam Newton is an interesting player because we're talking about Hall of Famers and I think a lot of people are can't really figure out if Cam Newton is an elite player that's going to be in the Hall of Fame or is he someone who's going to have just an okay career or where he's at. And he's he's 27 years old, and, and this is a key time. And his star-wide receiver is supposed to be Calvin Benjamin from Florida State, this phenomenally talented receiver. And as someone who plays fantasy all the time and who said, boy, this Calvin Benjamin's going to have a great year, I drafted Calvin Benjamin twice, so one year and then got burned and did it again. So, But it's interesting that when the Carolina Panthers had Calvin Benjamin on the team, with healthy, because he was hurt one year, they were 18 wins, 20 losses. When he wasn't on the team, they're 21-3 and three and made it to the Super Bowl. Uh, and as someone who watched a lot of their games, I just I felt it was, it was criticism that you don't see in the NFL. You don't see a player. I mean, this is like a Terrell Owens level of criticism, because I, when he criticized uh, Jeff Garcia, his quarterback in San Francisco, uh, for him to say that uh, um, Cam Newton is not accurate, that he's not intelligent, uh, it's very strong criticisms, and now he's going to be playing in Buffalo, <laughs> and hopefully for him they can he can he gets maybe a rookie quarterback. But uh, very strong criticism. I I look I like Cam Newton. I think that Carolina is an interesting team. Uh, I'm ready for them to have a good year this year. I think McCaffrey is going to have a, a, a great year at running back. 
Uh, so and and Olsen, I I think they're going to be very good. I think that that Christmas is totally unfounded. Uh, Calvin yeah. Benjamin is not the elite player that he thinks he is. And that's <laughs> exactly. why I don't. He could have Tom Brady as a quarterback, and he still is not going to put up big numbers. Yeah, no, and I, I like how you brought up the To criticism because To arguably arguably is the third best statistical wide receiver this game's ever seen behind Jerry and Randy, uh, Jerry Rice and Randy Moss, and yeah. then Kelvin Benjamin's a bomb. You know, so highly <laughs> acclaimed coming out of Florida State, all that. The guy's big, he's slow, doesn't get separation, he's a high-point guy. Um, so for him to, you know, th- there's a reason why Carolina traded him, you know, flat out. I mean, he's not the talent that he thinks he is. Doesn't matter that you are a first-round uh, uh, pick and, you know, he got sent to the Bills. You know, if he thinks that Cam Newton's not a good quarterback, you know, look at who, who they're trotting out. They're not going to start Josh Allen. It's between Nathan Peterman, the guy that took Tyrod Taylor's job and threw five picks in the first half, or A.J. McCarron, who, you know, couldn't beat out uh, Andy Dalton in, in, in Cincinnati. So if he's going out and he's talking, the interesting point about this, two things before, before we move on, uh, Sean McDermott's already come out as coach of the Bills and said, hey, there's no place for this. He's talked about it. So I, I don't expect to hear anything uh, you know, from Kelvin moving forward. I'm surprised Cam hasn't come out and said anything, or I've just missed it, but I haven't heard anything from Cam yet. The exciting thing about this comment, this Sunday, their first preseason game is Carolina versus uh, uh, Buffalo. So, so it's kind of exciting to see, you know, something like this to come out. Former teammates, him going out talking, uh, and Cam. You know, I, I sent a picture to you, Eli, standing next to Cam Newton, who's absolutely shredded out of his mind. Looks like a man on a mission this year to try to get his team back to the Super Bowl. Um, so, so I, I don't expect to see so much, but to see before the game, are they going to be on the middle of that field at the fifty-yard line, drawing back and forth to each? other? So uh, it's something to look for this weekend. You know, the only thing I can say in defense of Cam Newton is he made Brandon LaFell a good receiver. Oh, my God. And we've seen Brandon LaFell just bounce around this league. He's the career journeyman. He's in his 30s. Ted Ginn. Brandon LaFell. He's making guys that have just bounced around and done nothing in the league relevant. Yeah. Kelvin Benjamin, you're a first-round draft pick. Who can't get separation. And, yeah, and you're not succeeding. Maybe you are the issue. 742 Ira on Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. It's time to bring in Phil Combs. He's our product liability expert attorney. Phil, you know, we had an interesting conversation earlier. Are we going back to leather helmets in the NFL? Is, <laughs> is this where this is headed, Phil? <laughs> yes, I know exactly where it's headed. Um, and could you ask the question again? Are, are we going back to leather helmets? Oh, no, we're absolutely not going back to leather helmets. Um, no. Um, so, you know, I thought I would talk a little bit tonight about where we are with helmets and particularly helmet litigation. You know, I've defended football helmet cases, and historically they involved a player that had a big hit. It's usually a kid who tackled another kid and had a severe injury like quadriplegia or severe brain damage, and uh, they were single-event cases. And over the last two decades in products law, We've seen an expansion where things have moved from single-event issues to repetitive issues. So just for example, uh, there's litigation about keyboards, whether they cause carpal tunnel, litigation about power tools, whether they cause complex regional pain syndrome. (laughs) And what you're seeing here is exactly the same kind of move like this. Uh, It's a repetitive injury, lots of little hits, lots of concussions, lots of sub-concussions. So anytime, anytime we've got a product case, I mean, the first thing we've got to figure out is, is the product defective and do we have a warning issue? In terms of product defect, I think the helmet manufacturers have a very good case. I mean, the test on this is whether the benefits of the product outweigh the risks. I think anybody would agree that a football helmet's benefits outweigh the risks. 
And the other thing is that in most states, you've got to be able to prove a feasible alternative design. You've got to be able to prove that there's something that would do a better job and would eliminate the risk of injury. And, you know, there's, there's no technology right now that's going to eliminate the risk of injuries for concussions or sub-concussions. But where helmet manufacturers probably have a lot bigger problem is on a warnings case. And so historically, the warnings for helmets have not contained anything about um, CTE or sub-concussions or concussion syndrome. And right now I'm looking at the new Riddell label, and here's what it says. No helmet can prevent serious head or neck injuries. Contact in football may result in concussion, brain injury, which no helmet can prevent. And, you know, that's a new label, but I think the issue is going to be whether that adequately warns of all the risks and whether um, warnings of that type were imparted in earlier generations. So we go back to your question, are we going back to leather helmets? No way. Um, but I think we are in for a lot of litigation over the, the generations of helmets that we currently have. Ira, what do you got? So, so, so I guess the question would be is, if the Riddell, because that might be the only company that's making helmets right now, if they keep getting sued and sued and sued, uh, and what happens? Like, what if they go out of business? Who makes the helmets? I mean, we can't. I mean, could you imagine starting Sunday football and, and, and we can't play the game because there's no helmets? How how would the NFL, how, but not just the NFL, because they probably could make their own and have companies do it, but how are our high school football teams and junior high school football teams, how are they going to get helmets in the future if somehow these lawsuits are just keep you know, putting Riddell out of business and they can't even make it? They can't make helmets anymore. Well, I don't want to minimize the litigation risk. I mean, we're all familiar with products that, uh, and companies that go out of business because of litigation. Uh, it happens all the time. But we do have multiple helmet manufacturers. I mean, we've got Riddell, we've got Shut, and Shut is a company that a lot has a lot of the innovations in football helmet technology have come from Shut helmets. You've also got Visus and you've got Zenith. So I, I don't think that you're going to see the companies go out of business. And even before that happened, what I think you would see is one of them go into a voluntary bankruptcy and just liquidate the claims against it. I think that'd be a lot more likely than, than it going out of business. But assume for a second that they did go out of business. I mean, you know somebody will step in and fill that vacuum and fill the market share. I mean, we'll just end up with helmets from India or China. Um, so I don't think it's realistic that you're not going to have helmets, um, but it is very realistic that the current helmet manufacturers and their insurance carriers are going to have a lot of litigation for a long time. Uh, so one more, one more, as you're the premier product liability expert in, in, in the sports industry, this is so interesting, but anyone who, like me who goes to a ton of sporting events is so frustrated when I go to baseball games now because I use my favorite seat was right behind the dugout. I love those. I get my best pictures. I love sitting there. And now I have a net right in front of me. And they're at every stadium. You can't go anywhere, any, any stadium, any, every major league stadium now that has a net in front. It goes from dugout to dugout, the end of the dugout. And if I don't want a net, I have to sit in the outfield. And there was actually a commercial I just saw on about the Yankees come to a Yankee game, and they showed a, a kid catching a foul ball. And I'm like, well, that must have been from five years ago because you're not catching a foul ball now. So what, why do I have nets? Why do I have nets now in front of me all the time? What, was, what, was the, what caused the fact that now the all stadiums, right. the major league baseball teams, after 130 years of no nets, now has nets all around it? All right, so Ira, I got very bad news for you, but the nets are here to stay. Um, 
you know, the 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 magnitude of people being injured by foul balls, I think, is probably higher than most people realize. It's something like almost 2,000 people a year were being injured by foul balls in major league ballparks. So historically, um, stadium owners were able to defend those cases. They had what's called a, um, a duty of due care that they owed to the spectators at the stadium. And there was a specific exception that a lot of states recognized, which was called the baseball rule. And the bottom line was, if you came to a baseball park, you assumed the risk of being injured by a fall ball, uh, by uh, a foul ball. So what happened is that there were some high publicity um, injuries uh, in which people got hurt from foul balls. And so the, the, the uh, Major League Baseball Commissioner, Manford, issued some recommendations in 2015, and the recommendations were exactly as you've described it, that the net should be from dugout to dugout, 70 feet high behind home plate. So once you get these recommendations like this, I mean, you're done because every team is going to have to adopt this because that's now the standard of care. I mean, the standard of care in baseball is now um, the – 2015 MLB recommendation. So you're going to see every team going to this, and you're not going to see you're not going to see it roll back. I mean, they're here to stay. One and one last question about product liability is ESPN for the last couple of years, and I have a lot of friends that have kids playing soccer, and you can see soccer fields everywhere, and they're astroturf, especially in northern parts of the United States where the weather is very hard to keep the fields. And there was this claim that, that soccer players, especially goalies, were, it was, were contracting cancer uh, at higher rates than the general population, and that somehow the soccer fields, the astroturf, soccer, I use the term astroturf, but uh, synthetic fields, however you want to call it, because they used rubber, some sort of rubber in there, that that's what was causing the cancer. And I, I, and I didn't know what, was, you know what the status of that was, because ESPN has run a number of stories about this, and I just want your feeling of that. And are you are they going to get rid of the synthetic soccer fields or go back to grass, which of course is very hard to have? What uh, what have you heard about that situation? It's a very interesting issue. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the issues you see where some parents are concerned that vaccines can cause autism. So what what you have here is you have an epidemiological mistake. And it's, it's very easy to understand why you have it. I mean, you have parents that are worried about their children. Uh, we can all understand that. But the, the reality is, is what you have here is a very big number. 25 million um, people play soccer every year in the United States. Just because soccer is not as big on the, on the major league level, we sometimes forget how huge it is, um, you know, through, through youth sports. So anytime you've got a number that big, I mean, it's almost hard to comprehend it. Um, but the background rate for blood cancers is something like 1 in 300. So I can tell you right now that you're going to have 60,000 people that have played soccer that are going to get blood cancers, and you're going to have something like seven or 8,000 goalies that are going to get blood cancers just because it's such a big number. So what we had here was we had an assistant head coach that noticed what she thought was a cluster, and she appropriately pointed that out and, and said that she was worried about it. And they've done some epidemiological work, and that they've determined that there is, in fact, no higher rate associated with children who play, uh, play soccer on these rubber fields. So, you know, I don't think you're going to see litigation over this. I don't think there's any case here. I don't think there's any science that supports this. I mean, the bottom line is that there's no provable link um, that these fields are causing an increase in cancer. So, you know, I don't think I don't think you're going to see any elimination of um, turf soccer fields. 
Phil, I want to thank and you. Last, go ahead. Go ahead, Aya. So, one, so one, one last question. Um, on Besides being a product liability expert, you actually were a former U.S. attorney and had prosecuted the first federal domestic violence uh, case against the Interstate Domestic or Federal Domestic Violence Act and were recognized by Janet Reno and Bill Clinton and everything for that. So uh, I don't know how much familiarity you have with the Urban Meyer situation and with domestic violence, but, uh, but in terms of that case, what can you add in terms of your knowledge being one of the foremost uh, forerunners in terms of the law and, and being famous for prosecuting the case? What's your opinion of the whole Urban Meyer case in Ohio State? Yeah, I, I, I can talk about it a little bit. And, and frankly, I'm sure that you guys know more about it than I do. You know, d- domestic violence in America is just its an incredible problem. Every single person that's listening to this radio show knows a woman who is a victim of domestic violence. You just don't know it. Um, over 4 million women a year in the United States are abused by their spouse or domestic partner. And, you know, one of my very close friends and law school classmates, Karen Forehand, was killed by her husband in 1995, and she was a victim of domestic violence. It's a complete myth that it, it's, you know, somehow relegated to people of a lower socioeconomic status. So now that I've gotten on my soapbox, let's talk about this for a second. <laughs> you know, the, the allegation here is that, that, you know, he knowingly employed an assistant coach that had a history of domestic violence. And, you know, that's not a crime. I mean, there's no, you know, there's no criminal statute that says you can't have an employee that's committed domestic violence. It's not an administrative issue. Um, there's no allegation that it had anything to do with the assistant coach's job function. But, you know, what it is is just a tremendous lapse of judgment. I mean, when you're you know, running a state football program, you just can't do something that dumb and have an assistant coach. It really, I think we've all got to recognize these are colorable claims. I mean, we've got an arrest um, in 2009. We've got later allegations in 2015. Now, one thing I do want to mention is this really puts employers in a tough spot because an arrest isn't a conviction. And so typically, employers cannot take employment actions against employees based upon arrests. I mean, there's, there's no proof there. It's an allegation. But you know, I think anybody with any sense in this situation would have just gone ahead and taken some administrative action and then just toughed it out in court and paid whatever uh, verdict they had to pay if they lost something regarding it. So to my mind, I, I see it as, as probably a, a lapse of judgment. But I just want to say one more thing about it. You know, the jury's not in yet. We don't know all the facts about this. And it may be that when all the facts come out, we're going to see that Urban Meyer's conduct was better than it, than people are speculating. And, and for example, um, it's very possible that, that they may have been encouraging the assistant coach to do some type of counseling. Um, there are all kinds of programs that people can be put into to help them with domestic violence issues. So I, I just want to be cautious here. I don't know the facts. I don't think anybody knows all the facts yet. But if what happened, you know, if what was reported is what happened, then I would think we would all agree it sounds like a lapse of judgment. That's what I can offer on it. Well, thanks a lot, Phil, for uh, coming on. You know, you definitely have a lot of skill set that covers what we're talking about in sports, and I really appreciate you coming on Iron Sports today. 
Oh, my pleasure, Ira. Let me know anytime I can I can uh, talk with you about issues like this. He is Bye. attorney Phil Combs, our product liability expert, joining us here on Ira on Sports, 755-959 True Oldies Channel. We're going to go over on this show. We kind of do that every week. Again? <laughs> um, Ira, let's go to baseball real quick. Sean is next to me wearing his uh, absolutely beautiful Mariano Rivera uh, BP jersey. 95. I would have burned it after this last series. The Yankees look like crap. I, I mean, we, we got our pants beat in three of the games, let one slip through uh, Aroldis Chapman's fingers last night uh, on a Benintendi single in the 10th. Ira, do you think that Yankees nation should be concerned or even more than concerned realize that you guys can't beat this team? It's amazing that going into the series, they're down, they're back five and a half games, and you're like, okay, they're going to go, they go three and one, they're going to cut it to three and a half. This we got a race. The Boston Red Sox just ended the division race, and also in such a way crippled the Yankees with uh, that. The fact is that Seattle and the and the A's are now through two and a half and four and a half games. The Yankees might not make the playoffs. I can't, I can't remember a series in the beginning of August that had such ramifications. For a team, because the Yankees were and they, and how they were beat. I mean, the first game on Thursday night, they lose fifteen to seven. Steve Pierce has three home runs, six RBIs. Every home run looked like it was flying out of Fenway Park. Uh, there was not even close to hitting the wall. And then they come back Friday and lose four to one. And Pierce has another home run, and Parcello has a one-hitter against this famed Yankee lineup. So, I mean, it's amazing. The first game, they lose 15-7, to and they get blown out. And you're like, wow, how can you get you know, only seven runs, and you still get blown out? And then they lose 4-1. to And then on Saturday, they, they lose 4-1 to again uh, when they actually had the Red Sox on the ropes at the end, at the end of the game. I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, Kimball's struggling, and they couldn't, with bases loaded, Bird flies out uh, in the ninth inning. But then finally, you're like, okay, they've lost three straight. We're going to go on Sunday. And I think the, the problem with, uh, with uh, on Friday was that Severino lost, too. And he didn't pitch well. And, yeah, your best uh, pitcher loses. Five innings, seven good. hits, four runs. And that's what they need. I mean, they need Severino to be that lights up pitcher. But then Sunday comes, and they're leading one nothing. And, 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 and I mean, the Reds are up one nothing. But then they had that big seventh inning. They go up 4-1. So now everything's great. And I was like half falling asleep to the game. And they bring Britton in. He gets a good inning. Uh, Patances has, a, has an inning of relief. So they're going to win the game 4-1. It's a terrible series. They, they lose it 3-1. But then Chapman gets, gets two outs on strikeouts, but then walks the bases loaded. And then he gives up two more hits. They make an error. Suddenly it's 4-4. They lose 5-4. And now it's a four-game sweep. Devastating to the Yankees. It's just, just a... Uh, just on all facets, they did not get the starting pitching they needed. They didn't get the relief, the key relief pitching that they needed, and they didn't get the hitting that they needed. So on all aspects of the game, they were destroyed, and they'll never be. Anyone who thinks they're going to catch the Red Sox, that is totally delusional, and they better be careful or they're not even going to be in the playoffs in the first place. No, there's no catching Boston at this point. Sean, you're as big a Yankee fan as there is out there. You think we're screwed, man? I mean, I, I still think we made the playoffs. I don't think we catch Boston. Obviously, devastating uh, to to get swept in the fashion we did, especially in Game Four. Um, you know, I I think what they're looking at is you know with Judge with Sanchez. We didn't have Hap. He comes back. I believe he's going to start on Thursday. But when you look at the upcoming uh, schedule, I mean, 
We have fairly easy opponents in the in the next few series. White Sox, Rangers, a makeup game with the Mets, the Rays, who've somehow had our had our number all year. Um, Blue Jays, two games with the Marlins, uh, Orioles, back to Chicago, uh, White Sox, then Detroit. Then uh, once we get into September, that's when we see the A's, the Mariners. Um, this should be an eight fifty win clip. So so what I'm saying is is this month is where we can make a real move because the teams that we're playing, you know, are all you know at the bottom. Uh, of, of the standing. So um, in, in terms of losing the guys that we have and not having, you know, judging and all that stuff, uh, it's kind of aligning to what we saw, uh, what we knew kind of what would happen. But it looks like this month is definitely an easier month for us. So, you know, there's still hope. I, I think Boston's just way too good. I think the best team in baseball. I don't think, I don't see us catching them, but I think we can close that gap. And I definitely think we make the playoffs. I love that Boston's bucking the trend of the entire league. Everybody in the league wants home run hitters that strike out every other time. Yeah. Boston's like, how about we get a bunch of 290, 300 hitters that steal bases, put them on a team together, and, and we crush runs. everybody. <laughs> it, it, it's just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. The Yankees are – they're not winning the World Series. At this point. After seeing that series, knowing you have to go through Boston, if you even make the playoffs and yeah. then get to the ALCS, you got to face these guys, they are in a lot of trouble there. You know who else might be in trouble, Ira? And this is like flying under the radar. Houston, great record, 71-42. and 42. They got the best differential in baseball. Oakland's only four games behind them, and Seattle is only six and a half behind them. Carlos Correa, George Springer, Lance McCullers all just hit the DL. Jose Altuve's hobbled. You think the Astros are starting to worry, I? Well, the Astros are my team. They're my pick. I think that... They'll hold off them. I, I, if I, I would rather be the Astros than the Yankees right now. I think the Astros. I mean, you certainly. Berlin, I mean, they took two out of three against the Dodgers. They go and out of. So I, I think when you have Verlander get fourteen strikeouts in a game, they have Garrett Cole's pitching great. You still have as much. What's amazing about the Astros? They have all these injuries, and they still have a lot of great players. They're able to make the right moves. Um, I, I like the Astros to hold off, but I, I, I do think that Seattle and Oakland. And Oakland's playing great. I mean. Uh, they are they are like the kings of the down five nothing in the eighth inning and come <laughs> back and win the game. Uh, they are they are tremendous. So, but I do think that. Uh, um, but I, I I like the Astros still to hold on, and I think the Astros either might still my team to win the World Series. Uh, Ira, I love that you're putting in the effort for West Coast baseball like you do for West Coast basketball. Uh, watching you know Oakland come back at two o'clock in the morning, uh, like it is when you have to watch those games. MLB Network never leaves my TV, so I'm always seeing them. Sean Astros, a, a little bit of concern here. Your four best player, not bet your three best position players and your number three starter are going to be out for a little while, and they don't have that much ground on the athletics. What do you think if you're Houston, Sean? I think there's, you know, there's there's some cause for concern um, because you're talking about, you know, some of their best players, you know, uh, and also bring a glove, not just their bat. So um, I, I think Ira brings up a good point, you know, with Cole and Verlander. I mean, those those two guys have been pitching phenomenal. And, you know, when you got two guys going out and throwing uh, uh, scoreless innings, you don't need a, a ton of runs to, to go out and win a, a ball game. So um, I still think – 
Oakland is like that one team that you have every kind of year uh, that, you know, a lot of unsung heroes. I know they added to their... That's always uh, Oakland. Yeah. They, they, they were a hero since Giambi. Yeah, exactly. But they added to their uh, to their bullpen, I believe. I picked up uh, the the guy from... Who they get? Uh, uh, Fires? Fears? from uh, Mike Fires. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They picked him up, uh, and, which I never understand. It's like deadline's done, and yet there's still baseball trades going on. <laughs> so, uh, Good but, luck explaining baseball's yeah, rules. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think the Astros have to worry about Oakland, but it will be interesting to see because they're, you know, with, with the guys that are on DL right now. So, and, and, and Altuve up in the air, whether he hits the DL or not. So that would be a big loss. 803, it's Iron Sports, 95.9 True Oldies Channel. Mike and Sean were here as well. Ira, you know, we touched on Urban Meyer a little bit earlier with Phil Combs. I think everybody knows what's going on now, and it's pretty damning, the, the evidence. I mean, this guy clearly did... Um, commit d- domestic violence, and he's going to face the ramifica- ramifications. But what does that mean for Urban Meyer? I, I, Ira, of course, we don't have all the details yet, but what do you think is the crime here for Urban Meyer? I think, first of all, this is an interesting case because I think that people, when the Brett McMurphy story came out, people said, what great reporting. Well, he interviewed the domestic violence victim, but he did not talk to Ohio State and did not talk to police. And so for two days, the story hung out there, and it's like Urban Meyer did not knew about domestic violence in 2015 that he already knew in 2009, but didn't report it to anybody. So that went on for two days until the, Urban Meyer came out and said, look, I followed all protocol. And then Zach Smith the, uh, came out and said, Gene Smith, the athletic director, called me off the field in 2015, talked to me when I was a recruiting, brought me back, and we had meetings on that. I met with them, I met the police, I met with Urban Meyer. So clearly the idea that this was not reported, that the police were involved in 2015, that the administration was involved in it. So the idea at first they were saying, well, under Title IX, he had a duty to report, he didn't report. That's what they were attacking Urban Meyer on. Now it, does, it seems like, well, Urban Meyer did report this. He did report to his AD. They did report it to the higher-ups. The police were involved in it, and then the decision was made. So the question is, well, should he have fired him in 2015? But that's an issue of, what he, you know, he'll say a statement will be, well, I was trying to work with him, and then we went and the police were investigating it, and I wasn't putting in a situation. I mean, there was no issue, there's no, um, there's no evidence that Urban Meyer was intimidating police. There was no evidence that he somehow was trying to squash this by, by, by talking to witnesses or intimidating police. And he wasn't putting her, the victim in a situation where he's meeting with her ex-husband. So it, I just don't know. I mean, I don't. I think that he's going to survive this. I don't. I think the issue was that he didn't report it; they would have fired him. And I think that now that the athletic director and everybody else, and I mean, at the higher level of the president, knew about this, and the decision was made to keep Zach Smith on and with the police involved. I just don't. I don't think they're going to fire him. I think he's going to hang on, or maybe get a game or two suspension. But I think in the end, I think people rush the judgment a little fast, saying that he didn't report this when it's the evidence is out here, sort of that he did report it. Well, the the rush to judgment on the fact he didn't report is because when uh, the the Big Ten media day rolled around, he said, "I knew about '09, but I knew nothing about 2015." So even in his statement, he acknowledges that and he says, "You know, I just wasn't prepared. I misspoke. We did follow all the proper protocols." The issue then becomes. Court of public opinion. Okay, you have a guy that gets arrested. Everything happens in 09. Then it happens again in 2015, and you don't fire him. You don't get rid of him, and then you only fire him two days before this story comes out. So that's where, especially in the time that we're in with, you know, everything going on in this country and, uh, you know, domestic violence being such a, you know, an issue, which it should be. I mean, there's no place for this guy in sports. I mean, he should have been fired in 09 when all this came out. I believe... Uh, the I don't want to say the excuse, but the reasoning behind it was the, the his victim. grandfather is well, a huge. 
huge, well, huge player in college football. But the victim recanted, said, you know, did mm-hmm. arrest and all that stuff and said, no, it didn't happen. It was misunderstanding, all that. So, so that can explain away 2009. There is no explanation for 2015. The crime that Urban Meyer has committed here is, one, keeping the guy on staff. Two, then lying to media day when it all came out. That's why then, I think that was Wednesday, come Friday, now he's releasing the statement. So that's where it's at. I agree with Ira. I think he survives it. I think he'll get a two to four game suspension, which, you know, even if it's a two game suspension, you're going to play cupcake opponent opponents. You're going to play, you know, Fordham, you know, uh, uh, you know, first game. And then, you know, probably one of the worst teams, uh, you know, in a non, uh, non-conference game, your second game. So um, I, I do think he survives it. I think the backlash will be so bad, but you know, once the W start coming in, they'll move past it. And, you know, this will all be forgotten. Unfortunately, you know, a year, two years down the road. Um, let's just uh, keep it in college football before we wrap this up. Ira, Nick Saban, uh, under a little bit of a heat right now. Jalen Hurts, he was a standout quarterback at Alabama up until halftime of the national championship game <laughs> exactly. when he got replaced by Tua Tagovailoa. You know, don't don't quote me on that. Tua. Ira, do you think that Jalen Hurts has a right to be upset here in how he's been handled? Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a, anybody who watched that championship game when they were losing 13 nothing, I think Nick Saban, uh, you talk about one of the gutsiest moves Without to actually doubt. make a change of quarterback, and he took the quarterback out that was 27-2 and over two years. That year as a sophomore had 17 touchdowns and only one interception, had led them down to back-to-back championship games, and in the middle of a halftime of game takes the quarterback and pulls the quarterback out. And it works! And the quarterback that he brings in plays great. And, of course, the quarterback he brought in is one of the top recruited, top recruits in the, you know, in the history of quarterbacks. It's supposedly fantastic and great. and all these. So he wasn't just putting anybody in. But I don't know. I mean, Jalen Hurts, if you want to go to Alabama and you want to play in a big-time program like that, then there's always going to be your backups going to be great, too. And it's at any other position. And as much as Jalen Hurts might be upset, uh, Tua came in and played fantastic. And if Hurts thinks he's better, then try to beat him out in camp. And if he's not, then transfer to another program and play somewhere else. But if you go to Alabama and you think you're just going to have a job, that's your job forever. I, there's always someone coming up. Look, there's always another five-star recruit that's going to be in that program. And it just I think it's a, he put himself in that position. Go to another school where you don't have as much competition then. Uh, Ira, you're absolutely right, at least in my opinion. You know when you go to a big program that this is what's going to happen. You know when you play at FAU, they're, they're bringing in a recruit, a quarterback every year. you got to compete for your job. Sean, you think Jalen Hurts deserves to be upset here? Well, it's a, I think his comments are taken a little, you know, you have to look at him in context. He's been asked this entire offseason, you know, are you staying? Are you did it? And all he said is, hey, I don't know. You know, there, there hasn't been any communication to me over the summer. That's what he talked about. So he keeps asking, hey, you got to ask coach. You got to ask coach. His frustration is just over the summer, hey, they never reached out to me. They weren't seeing how I was doing, nothing like that, which seems somewhat unusual. And I don't know how much they were talking to two over the 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 uh, course of the offseason. but Jalen's been the first round quarter uh, the, uh, the the number one quarterback because two has been uh, sidelined. So Saban's already come out and said, "Hey, I expect both these guys to play in the beginning." You see that a lot of times. Even Jalen, that's how he started his Alabama career. I forgot uh, Barnett, I believe the the quarterback's name is. I think he went to um, let's say he was either Arkansas or Arizona State, but he was a top five guy. I thought he would have been the guy. Jalen came in just beat him 
him out. So he's already gone through this once in his freshman season. Uh, so he's seeing that with Tua now. He's already stated, hey, I'm staying until December because that's how close he is to graduation. He has one year of eligibility after that. And as long as he goes outside the SEC, he'll be able most likely to uh, you know, uh, go to that program, play next year immediately. Uh, if it's within the SEC, there's certain things. Alabama has to prove it, this, that. But I don't think so much where he has all this frustration. I think that came out after the comments were made. His mom made a post on Facebook because everybody was attacking him, and it, be- <laughs> it became this this big thing. But all he said was, "Hey, I haven't had any conversations. You know, uh, I, I don't know who the starter is going to be. You got to ask coach that. Um, you know, but that but but that's about it. So." Um, I think it's overblown a little bit. I think if I was him, I'd feel a little slighted. But at the end of the day, he's going to get a chance someplace else because I think Tua is going to win the job. He's that phenomenal as a quarterback, uh, pro-style quarterback as well, where Jalen's more of that dual threat. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I think he'll stay to December, transfer next year, and we'll see him uh, leading the team, you know, to uh, to victories next season. I totally would have walked if I was Jalen Hurts. I wouldn't even want any part of that. I, granted, you want to play in Alabama, but. If I think I'm a star, I want to know I'm the quarterback. Well, I also think that shows his character, though, where he was willing to come back and compete, where everybody said, oh, well, if you this, you should have left. Well, no, I'm going to come back. I'm going to compete against this guy. I beat him out last year. Maybe I can do it again. So I, I think it, it shows what a good kid he is to go get his education, finish up his college degree, and then take his uh, talents elsewhere. Ira, before we wrap this up, 24 hours ago, nobody in the world would have known who Brian France is. Um, he's the CEO of NASCAR, and he's getting DUIs in our backyard. <laughs> Turn left. Hello? Are you there? Yeah, I'm here, I'm here. Yeah, no, uh, Brian France, well, I think people know he's the CEO of NASCAR, and, and uh, he was one of the most powerful people in sports, because people don't understand is that the France family, not only, they don't just run NASCAR, they own NASCAR. So it's like if Roger Goodell owned the NFL. So that's just a weird aspect of the NASCAR. Is. So he's extremely powerful, because not only is he running the sport, he owns the sport at the same time. And so he's sort of like if Jerry Jones, I guess if Jerry Jones was the commissioner, and owned the other NFL teams, and he was the commissioner of the NFL. But uh, it was interesting that he did get a DWI in Sag Harbor, New York, where I, and about an hour after I was actually in that spot, and it's once it's a stretch of road where I don't think you stop at a stop sign where it's 15 miles an hour. It's right through the heart of town, and anybody and there are cops every block. So for him not to know that you cannot, if there's one stretch of road you cannot either go fast or miss a stop sign, it's right there in the middle of Sag Harbor. So it was ironic that he's the head of the racing sports and he got pulled over with a DWI, but it's definitely something where I know NASCAR is very, uh, you know, they're very concerned about it. You don't hear NASCAR drivers getting a lot of DWIs or getting speeding anyway. I mean, they're very concerned about that because of their fan-friendly reputation. And you would expect that these drivers who are driving 230 miles an hour would get pulled over going 80 miles an hour <laughs> on roads when it was 70. But you don't hear the stories because it doesn't happen. We are just about out of time here. Great show tonight. I want to thank so much Scott Deal, our pro golfer, for popping by. Also, attorney Phil Combs. Sean McGregor is here as well. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike Balsamo. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on sports.